Lovely to see you guys. Um, yeah, what a morning. Isn't it fun that there's so much good stuff going on? I honestly am so excited about uh, and so grateful for all that we have to celebrate. Um, but that means that we're a little behind schedule, so I'm going to try and talk as quickly as I possibly can at you. Why don't we continue our series in John's Gospel? That would be good, wouldn't it? Uh, following on from Jesse and Jeremy's excellent last two preaches, which if you're new here or if you're visiting or if you've missed them for whatever reason, I commend them to you. They're on our website or the, the second one soon to be on our website. Go and give those a listen. Why don't you open your Bibles to John chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Whilst you do that, we join the, the story just after the Last Supper. So they're still sitting around the table. And Jesus is taking the last opportunity before his crucifixion to give the disciples a God's eye view of what's to come. Let's read the passage. I'll read it on the screen in the English Standard Version. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Amen. There are three main points I want to draw out of this passage today as we look at it together. They are reassurance, realization, and resources. I managed to have these ones have the same letter. <laughs> Very proud of myself. Reassurance. Jesus says, I'm taking you with me to the presence of the Father. Realization. Jesus says, I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. Jesus is the way to the Father. And resources. We're not sent out just to echo Jesus' ministry, but to continue it, to grow it. And he's with us, providing the leadership and the power. First off then, reassurance. Jesus' tone here, I think, is just so gentle, so caring. He loves this bumbling group of doubting mistake makers, which is excellent news. 
I need exactly that sort of love and grace myself. What's happened immediately before this passage we've just read is Jesus declaring that someone is going to betray him. And then Peter says he'll die for his master. Jesus calls him out on it. Will you, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. That's John 13, 38. And what's all this talk of Jesus leaving? The disciples could have been forgiven for being unnerved. And it's in that context that Jesus gives this reassurance. In fact, it's a bounce directly from Peter you're going to let me down big time to, don't worry though, guys, believe in me. But much more than don't worry, this word troubled in verse 1 has a sense of a whipped up sea, agitated, shaken, stirred up, tossed about, like waves that have become violent. It's far more powerful than don't worry. It's don't let your heart be troubled. But the reassurance coming is not, bad things aren't going to happen. It's, I'm going to take you into the presence of my Father. Lift your eyes up. This is greater, even than the stuff that might trouble your heart. Verse 2 and 3 give a succession of assurances. Each one builds on the last. Firstly, my Father's house has many rooms. Well, that's good news. Secondly, I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. Okay, brilliant. And thirdly, I'll come and get you to take you there myself and we'll be there together. There's a tradition that in Jewish marriages of this time, a betrothal ceremony would take place first and then between that betrothal ceremony and the marriage itself, the bride and the groom, having made these serious promises, you could get divorced just from a betrothal without having to need the full marriage uh, to be divorced from it. Between the betrothal and the wedding ceremony, the bride and groom go back to their own father's houses. And the groom and the bride make their preparations completely separately. The bride prepares her dress, prepares uh, for married life together. Um, and this can be a year long making a really nice dress. You don't just nip down to a shop. The groom <laughs> decided I knew nothing about dresses and leave that point there. <laughs> the groom goes back to his father's house and prepares a place for them to live. So he prepares the dwelling. But not only sort of arranging some cushions, Sometimes he'll go back. <laughs> so when your wife and fellow senior pastor in the front row goes, <laughs> just Jim, leave the cushions as well. He goes back and often physically builds a room on the side of the house or on the top of the house. So when the, the, the groom says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's going and building an extension so that you can have your own home with his family. Fun fact as well. The groom doesn't get to judge whether it's good or not, good enough. <laughs> Just looking out at the younger gentleman in this church who might be considering marriage and thinking, no, nah, you're not, you don't judge this. Let, let's someone with experience. So the groom's father gets to say, now is the extension ready. Now you're ready for the wedding. Which means if you say to the groom, when's the big day? The groom doesn't know. All the groom can say is, only my father knows the time. There are some beautiful parallels between the marriage ceremony, as it was understood at the time, and how Jesus interacts with his disciples and the promises he makes to us. 
loads of symbolism in Jesus' journey from living amongst the disciples on earth, ascending to the Father, then coming back for us in what we call his second coming. The Bible talks about trumpet sounds before Jesus appears. The groom parading towards the bride's house at the right moment would be led by his best man and a trumpet, and the best man would be shouting, make way for the groom, the bridegroom is coming. Just, oh man, look into that, it's amazing. I didn't believe it. I can't, this isn't my notes. I didn't believe it. I thought someone, some Christian who's read Revelation has gone back and written this and pretended it was a, a, a tradition. But no, there's enough out there to, to back this. I think this is it's a ritual lost to us now. But Jesus was absolutely weaving the promise he was making into what these guys understood as marriage. We don't pick up the metaphor that Jesus is giving his disciples here that the restoration of their relationship with God would be like a marriage ceremony, but these guys absolutely did. Jesus is saying to them, you'll be so close to God, so intimate with him, it'll be like a marriage. That's why I'm going, Jesus is saying to them. That's what I'm going to do. The only reason Jesus would leave these guys is to go and build rooms for them and for each of us. The other times Jesus talks about his father's house, Uh, when he's making reference to the temple in Jerusalem. This is John 2, verse 16. But that's not to do with the, the bricks and the mortar of the temple being special. It was his father's house because that's where the presence of God dwelled. God himself had promised to be there in the holy of holies or most holy place, as well as the daily rituals that the priests and the people of Israel performed around the temple. Once a year, the high priest would go into God's presence itself to make sure that the relationship between God and his people was clear and restored. When Jesus talks about his father's house, he's talking about the presence of God. And so what is Jesus getting at in John 14, verse 2? There is space for all of you, he says, in the presence of God. You can live with me in the place that I've prepared for you with Abba Father, God Almighty, face to face. That's some assurance. Jesus has said before, I'm going ahead of you, you can't follow me there. And now, there's space for you with God himself. The reason I'm going is to prepare this place for you, and I'm coming back for you myself to carry you across the threshold into this new marriage home. Last time I stood up here to preach, I remarked that I don't often talk much about heaven, and I reflected that perhaps I should do so more. In the Vineyard Movement, we talk about the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. I get excited when I see little bits of his kingdom bursting out now. I love seeing him give words and pictures. I love seeing him heal people, and we do see that, and it's brilliant. But the future bit, the not yet, that he's prepared for us, man, that's... Awesome. That bears some thinking about. I love the presence of God. I love the glimpses of it that he gives to us. And there's an important clarification to make here. Jesus isn't promising us a future candy land with unlimited ice cream. Just realize heaven compares to Pizza Hut in that picture. (laughs) Heaven is a picture of the most soul-satisfying, intimate relationship with God. It's living in the Father's house. It's moving in with Jesus. There may also be ice cream. But it's okay if there isn't. This is so much bigger than our childish hopes have reached for. 
whatever the new heaven and new earth that God creates looks like, it's with him, and so I want in. I also want to say, I think it seems easy for people to mock the idea of heaven in this day and age. But if you want to spend eternity with the God of love, face to face, with this God who's done everything to prepare the most delightful place for you with him, then at the end of my talk, when I invite people to come forward for prayer, come forward. Invite Jesus to live in you, even if it's for the thousandth time. My second point then, the realization of who Jesus is. We're going to go through the passage a bit more quickly now, uh, and I'll nod briefly to Thomas and to Philip as we pass, because these guys very helpfully ask questions that we would probably want answered if we were stood there listening to this chat. So in verse 4, Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas pipes up in verse 5, uh, teacher, about that. No idea, boss. <laughs> but there's a difference between what Jesus says and what Thomas asks. You know the way. Oh, we don't know the destination. Jesus wasn't giving them a full description of what heaven's like or where it is and the map of exactly where to walk if you want to go there. He was giving them the assurance of what was waiting for them, the assurance of his own faithfulness that he was going to come and get us himself and an instruction until collection day to stay with me. That's how you get to my father's house. Okay, Jesus, stay with you. Got it. Which way should we start walking? It's like telling your child that you're taking them to Edinburgh Zoo this afternoon and putting their car seat in the car whilst you're telling them. And they're like, yeah, great, meet you there. See you later. And I'll down Market Street. And yet, that is exactly what I find myself being like all the flipping time. What's that, Lord? Serve you in this situation? Great. Just tell me how it's going to end, yeah? And I'll, I'll go there. It turns out that God would far rather we hold his hand and walk with him, trusting his leading, even if that means only seeing each next step as we take it with him. It's almost like that relationship matters more to him than the situation. Thomas's very literal question allows Jesus to state one of the most famous verses from John's Gospel. Verse 6. I am the way the truth, and the life. How do we get to heaven? To God? To FaceTime with Father? Only through Jesus. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the truth. Not just I speak the truth, but I am the truth. Everything that Jesus is, is an honest representation of the Father. To say yes to Jesus is not to be hoodwinked by some scam, no matter how dodgy I look, or even to be honestly mistaken, but it's to have formed a relationship with truth himself and to be led by truth into a real relationship with God. And thirdly, Jesus is the life, never-ending life with God, but as well as that future picture, Life in all its fullness, John 10 verse 10 says, for now. To opt into this relationship with Jesus is to opt into full life. Just pause for a minute. That's quite a bold claim for someone walking around on this planet to have made. 
Someone that you can point to, walk up to and pinch, declaring, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No wonder he ruffled a feather or two. Let's put it into context, though. Jesus isn't saying, I'm brilliant, by the way, it's all about me. But rather, I am the connection point to the Father. Let's go back to verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If there is a God, if there is an all-powerful personality that brought this universe into being, and if he's good, better than that, if he's loving, then surely trying to meet him is the most important thing that any of us can spend our short years working toward. And yet Jesus answers humanity's biggest and best hope. You can meet God. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Meet me. Let me take you to him. And Jesus goes further. Thomas, if you get to know me properly, and if you trust me and let me in, if you see who I am, you'll see this for yourself. And in the case of the disciples, who had been building a relationship with Jesus, they now knew that they'd also been building a relationship with the Father at the same time. I suspect that's actually similar to a few of you here who were once brought along by a friend who knew God and through that friendship, through that relationship, actually discovered the God himself even lurking within them as well as gracing us with his presence. And I don't think that Jesus's no one comes to the Father except through me is meant as a stern finger wag or a nur-nur-nur-nur-nur to other faiths. But it's a cry out to let people know that a way to the Father has been opened up. A bright flashing arrow to help people find the way. Let me tell you, everything I've experienced of God personally, all of my study of what he's revealed to humanity tells me that he wants to be known by as many people as possible. Similarly to Thomas, Philip interrupts in verse 8 with, Ah, yeah, the Father, yeah, show him to us, which we might say is fair. I've heard so many people outside the church say something like, If God would show himself to me, I'd believe in him. Frankly, I don't believe him. The Bible is full of stories of people who saw miracles and essentially said, Nah, even with the evidence right in front of them. It happened to Jesus himself. And if that weren't enough, I've prayed for people who weren't believers, had them physically feel bones realign in their spine, watching and feeling a miracle happening before them right then and there, and I've seen for myself them still not let Jesus into their hearts. Seeing is only believing if your heart is open as well as your eyes. Show us the Father. Actually, Philip, you've missed him so far. Jesus' response, I read with disappointment and perhaps a little exasperation rather than anger. Philip, how long have I been with you and you've not spotted that I'm in him and he's in me? There's more than faithful representing going on between Jesus and the Father. He's not just a well-briefed ambassador doing and saying the right things so that he can match up with the one who sent him. Jesus is guided moment by moment by his living relationship with Father God. Jesus even gives Philip an easier chance to accept this. 
Jesus in the Father, the Father's in, in Jesus' relationship. In verse 11, he says, look, Philip, if you've not spotted that the Father's here in me and I'm in the Father by the things that I've said and how I act, well, then at least spot the miracles are probably evidence of it, yeah? Jesus, having been sent as the rescue mission of God, wants us, humanity, to realize who he is on the evidence of what he said and on the miracles he's done. If we open our hearts and invite him into our lives, we invite the truth of God, the life of God, and the way to Father God that nothing else can give to us. Lastly then, we have some serious resources. Verses 12 to 14 are pretty exciting. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Like I say, that's pretty exciting. Unless you've ever used this to ask God for a Ferrari. <laughs> so let's dig into that a little. Jesus here is legitimately promising that anything you ask him in his name, he'll do it. Well, that's huge. So, why no Ferrari? Or, more seriously, why do we still have suffering in the world? Or unanswered prayer? Especially when it's things happening to people who've been asking God to change things. Well, that's a hard question, so let's start with a Ferrari. I think the reason we don't see Christians driving around in our own personally God-given supercars is the context of this verse. Jesus says, ask anything in my name. Now, that doesn't mean we add the magic words in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, and suddenly we've twisted God's arm. He has to grant our wishes, like a genie with a formula to control him. If you think about it, if one of us does something in our boss's name at work, we're acting on his or her behalf, sending a letter with their name at the bottom because they want that letter sent, doing things they'd want us to do. Acting in your boss's name and doing something your boss wouldn't do is a quick way to not have a job. Same thing's going on here. To act in Jesus' name is to act as Jesus acts, in continuity with him, literally continuing his works as if him, but with him as well, which is kind of good. Jesus invites us to ask for anything and promises to do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, verse 13. And he even tells us, back in verse 10, that the Father who dwells in me does his works. That link is so important if we're going to pray in Jesus' name. This is Jesus saying, if you ask for anything that is consistent with what I would ask, then I will present this prayer to the Father as if it were me asking for myself. Well, that changes things. Suddenly, it's not, aha, God, you promised, now you have to. But, Father, I think you want this to happen, and so I ask that you do it as if it were Jesus asking you. That approach is completely different. And we can ask boldly, with confidence, the more we get to know Jesus. But 
then it's a confidence that comes from knowing that we're loved, not a confidence that we have some sort of hold on him. Puts a different spin on praying in Jesus' name, right? Lord, can I have a big cake, please, in Jesus' name? Is it? Is that prayer in Jesus' name? The most important question, then. Does Jesus want Jim to have a Ferrari? Actually, joking aside, maybe. I'm convinced that God... (laughs) Stick with me here. And um, a word about giving. No. (laughs) Actually, though, a little bit. Run with me here. Because I'll be driving. (laughs) I'm convinced that God loves to give good gifts. I'm convinced that he does love to bless us. And so, it's not out of the question that God might give us cars, houses, or any unnecessary good thing. Like a doting father going to the supermarket with a precious toddler, sometimes a bag of sweets can make its way into the trolley alongside the celery. But those are the one-offs, the exceptions, not the rule. And I'm not expecting a Ferrari anytime soon. So what about when we're in pain? When something's going wrong, and we ask for God to deliver us in Jesus' name, I have to tell you straight up, I do not know why some prayers don't get answered. I don't know when it's because we're asking for something that God doesn't want to give, for whatever reason that's beyond us, or whether something else is going on that that somehow weakens our ability to ask God. It doesn't seem right, but I don't know why some prayers don't get answered. But I do know that God does answer prayer. I know we see enough answers in the positive to blow me away. And that when Jesus declares in verse 12, whoever believes in me will do greater works than Jesus has done, that he meant it. As I said before, I don't think that God is content with us just echoing Jesus' ministry. I think he's commissioned us to continue it. Some people have interpreted Jesus' promise of greater works to be telling the gospel to more people than Jesus managed to in his time on earth. Or, as Jesus describing the activity of the disciples in the book of Acts, whilst I agree that those things are covered by Jesus' promise here, I do not think that that's the limit of it or the extent of it. I think I've seen that God continues to back up his words with demonstrations of his love and power. I have seen people healed. I've been the person he's used to heal some people. And when he sends us out to represent him, sends us out in his name, as it were, and we ask him to back us up, we have some serious, miraculous resources for our mission of love. Jesus is active today, sat at the right hand of the Father, passing on our prayers as if they were his own in really exciting ways to build his kingdom right here on earth. I want to give you a couple of examples of this sort of amazing answer to prayer from the last couple of weeks. These stories are 14 days old at the latest to show you that God is doing these things now in this world, honoring his promise that he will continue the sorry, that we will continue the ministry that Jesus was doing whilst he was walking around amongst us. Although, of course, we do it only because he's doing it. These have been passed on to me from one of my close friends who's on mission at the moment. I want to say, not only do I entirely trust him, to be honest, but I was on the phone to him shortly after some of these happened, and he was freaking out in the best possible way. (laughs) So uh, let me read you a couple of um, stories. Uh, This is in his voice. 
There was an atheist healed at Healing on the Streets. So this guy, uh, I saw this guy walk past our Healing on the Streets chairs, avoiding us twice, he says. Just all twisted over, really hunched. His knee was almost pointing inwards. His back was curving in. He'd had two accidents five years ago that put him out of work. When we met him, he tells us he has a torn left MCL, medial collateral ligament, apparently, a patella tendon, medial meniscus, as well as two herniated discs in his lower back and a compressed disc in his neck. He also says, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. Smart guy, he's traveled all around the world working as a vet. So I tell him, what has he got to lose? And he shrugs and sits down to humor us. First thing, his knee, the most painful part, gets healed. He was measuring the pain at eight out of 10, it went down to three out of 10, and then down further. He stands up and nearly cries. He sits down again and says, either you're hypnotizing me or brainwashing me or you're converting me. My knee is better. <laughs> I love you gave A and B options there as well. <laughs> so he asks for a prayer for his back. Then he stands up straight and chokes back tears. He says, I haven't been able to do that for two years. You guys are converting me. He sits down. We pray again. And then he stands up and says loud to everyone around, including the non-believers who are passing, I haven't stood up straight for two years, and I don't believe this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are turning me around. I talk to him about Jesus, and he says, I never talk to anyone about God because I don't believe in him, but he healed me. I'm going to look into this. That was the first story. Second one. We have a barber in church who's new to faith. He's been reading the Bible for the first time and said in his own words, well, I guess my barbershop is my mission field. He's terrified of praying out loud. Uh, he's never prayed out loud, but will just lay a hand on his customer's shoulders as they sit. <laughs> and pray in his head. This guy's the opposite of me. I, was saying, I said a couple of months ago that whenever I go to the barber, this guy's trapped for 20 minutes with arm's length of my head. So I'm like, by the way, I work for a church. Let me tell you about Jesus. It's great. So, and that poor barber's like, oh, man. <laughs> wishing for Inspector Gadget. Anyway, this guy's the opposite. So as people are sitting down, he's like, hello, good to see you. So <laughs> what's scaring this guy is that people are starting to get healed. He had one customer come in who was particularly angry and had shoulder and back pain. She was the whole barbershop's nightmare customer. So he prayed under his breath. And when she stood up, she said, wow, my shoulder's fine now. What are you doing? <laughs> A few weeks later, after incessant invites, she showed up to church. After the service, she gave her life to Christ, and the look on the barber's face was absolute shock. <laughs> I love that. Time for a third? Well, not really. We're running late. I'll sneak it in. I'll sneak it in. Okay. We had a slightly skeptical student show up to Healing on the Streets for a year who saw enough people getting healed over that year that after a year, she started to pray to see something herself. She was fed up of hearing miracle stories and seeing them happen nearby, but not getting any action herself. So last week, she got up in the morning and prayed. That God, this is actually last week. She got up in the morning and prayed that God would heal somebody through her that day. She prayed for the first person who came to healing on the streets that day who had back pain. And they prayed, and it didn't happen. So they realized that this person actually doesn't have a problem with their back, but one leg is shorter than the other. So this student asked the lady to put her feet out side by side. The lady is a bit unsure, but went for it. The student prayed and felt the short leg start to tremble. She looked up and the lady's eyes widened. They measured the lady's leg had grown just under an inch in that moment, and all her back pain had gone. The student could barely believe it herself. She went on and saw more and more healings that evening. 
And just finally, in case any of you are thinking, that's a fun story, but nah. Since launching last year, over the last 12 months, they've had three cases of diabetes healed. They followed up, and two of those have been medically verified as healings. So it's not just fun stories. There's medical verification, uh, working in partnership with those who are giving medical treatment to make sure that uh, no one's saying stop taking medication or anything like that. I'll wrap us up. I share these with you as an encouragement. And to some of you, maybe as a challenge, that God heals today. That in Jesus' words, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, as he said in verse 12. And the reason I want to encourage and challenge us this morning is to say, let's see some of that ourselves, shall we? Let's ask him, as we tell others about him, to back up our words and miracles of healing, to give generous demonstrations of his love to people who need to know he's there and that he's for them, not against them. Let's ask God in Jesus' name, as we live in his name, to reinforce our works with the works that he does. In this hugely rich passage, Jesus offers us reassurance, even in the face of confusion and pain. He offers us truth, a realization we need to make that he is the way to the Father. And he offers us the resources and the reinforcement to make our work in his great commission of helping people make connections with God, a glorious and wonderful work. God is so good to us. Why don't you stand and I'll pray for us.